Hi, and welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. We are going to dive into no other than inspired show, Black Mirror. The science fiction anthology series creator Charlie Booker asked if technology is a drug and it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are the side effects? Today, we are going to pick the five scariest episodes for libertarians from the series, starting with the most realistic to just the downright eerie. In the studio to help us is Peter Suneman, Features Editor at Reason, and Paul Masco, Technology and Innovation Editor, as well as Building Tomorrow podcast host here at Libertarianism.org. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having me. Beer. Now, before we get started counting down which episodes we think are the most particularly scary for libertarians, what makes these dystopian scenarios scary for libertarians in particular, do you think? Uh, I, I guess what I what I found um, frightening for libertarians is that they uh, all of these uh, all of the episodes that we're going to talk about today, at least, end up suggesting that technology is a means of control and it's and that it is a vehicle for loss of personal choice and that technology in some cases often uh, decoupled from government, but in some cases often, in, so, in other cases uh, being used by government, technology is on its own something that robs us of, of what I think is sort of the, the fundamental libertarian value, which is individual and personal choice. And these, these episodes are all built around the idea that technology is inescapable and that once it has you in its grip, you can't get away from it. It's fundamentally pessimistic, right? Like I, I, whether or not you're a tech innovation person like myself, libertarians tend to be optimists. We're optimists about uh, human beings. We're optimists that if you free people to make personal choices, they'll do, do cool, fascinating, good stuff with it on the net. I mean, you're always going to have bad apples. But on the net, we tend to be uh, optimists. And specifically when it comes to tech innovation, each of these takes a tech or a set of technologies and says... We're going to imagine the most nightmarish possible vision of it being used to the absolute umpteenth degree uh, uh, in a horrific way, right? It's the most negative possible imagination with very little positive imagination work going on. Like, we know as libertarians that the history of economic growth tends to be to make things better, right? We have more and better things every generation because of technologically powered innovation. This is a world in which that's not true. Technology is going to destroy the good stuff we have. Watch out. Well, yeah, I definitely think that Black Mirror is feeding into our, our tech panic or robot, robots are overtaking the world and like they're taking that to an extreme, like Paul just said. So what kind of criteria are we going to be using to evaluate these episodes? What are specific things we're going to look towards that are worse than others? Uh, well, I I think as Peter mentioned the the loss of the ability to choose so and and there being sort of the, the that top down level of control uh, and, and the pervasiveness of the technology um, I think one of the the strongest ways that challenges technology to grow is when it is usually decentralized and there's a lot of options it forces competition uh, and we don't see a lot of that in the technology that's examined in black mirror everything tends to be very monolithic in the way it's portrayed and i think that is part of what makes the technology involved so uh, fear inducing it's a show in which in which there appears to always be only one technology company making any given product and <laughs> yeah. uh, right in which 
everything is a monopoly, and no one ever seems to think that that's weird. Now, I, I mean, I, I even I get that uh, that impression, right? There's a there's a sense in which Google and Facebook and some of these companies really sort of like, well, you assume that basically everyone that you meet is using Google. Um, is that most people are on Facebook? I should note, I'm not. Um, that this that, but you know, it's it's a reasonable assumption, but it is a show that sort of, that takes that to an extreme um, and just sort of assumes that that uh, that technology is inherently monopolistic and that again that not just that everyone uses it but that it is inescapable and unavoidable and, and the show is always framed in a way that they give you just enough information for it to suggest that perhaps maybe a company's involved in this maybe it's state mandated and and there's some higher power that people can't opt out of it in in some way but they never give you enough reassurance to know that perhaps this isn't in the world of the show as big a problem as this one storyline that you uses it uh, provides. So I think that's another reason that it can be kind of scary is it doesn't give you quite enough to make a, a completely qualified evaluation of the whole world of the show. Lest I sound overly critical of the show, I, I love Black Mirror. Watched every episode. So it, to, say, to point out that it's overly pessimistic and it's not as optimistic as I would be about tech innovation isn't saying that the show isn't good at what it's doing. It's actually often quite good at what it's doing. Um, in fact, it, that's true of the horror genre as a whole. Horror takes a, a kernel of legitimate fear, right? The fear that, oh, no, someone might break into my house and do things to me and my family. Now, that's unlikely. It's possible, but it's unlikely. But let's magnify that. They're going to break into our house. They're going to terrorize us wearing animal masks. Maybe they're actually doppelgangers of us that live in secret underground chambers. I mean, it, it, it takes legitimate kernels of fear and heightens them to make a point. Black Mirror is doing the same thing with tech. So, like, what's interesting to me, I think, as we analyze whether something's libertarian or not, or um, is to is to think, first of all, like, is that kernel a legitimate thing we should be worried about regardless of whether or not they're kind of heightening it and thinking through to who they decide to make the agent of the of the problem. So the fifth scariest Black Mirror episode that we decided, and obviously we can talk about whether you disagree with the way that we ranked these, but the fifth scariest episode, The Entire History of You. Yeah, so this episode centers around a grain implanted in your skull that record, records everything you do, every conversation you have, every small encounter you have with everyone else. Um, but the scarier part of this is very much like our old VCR tapes or DVD players. We can uh, re rewind and replay our memories as well as like project them onto screens in our living room um, for everyone to see. So Liam is the main character in this episode. He starts off with him having a job interview, and then he immediately gets in the car and replays all the memories um, and watches and overanalyzes his entire job interview. Um, but that was kind of to just introduce us to the to the context of what a grain is. So later on in the episode, Liam sits down with his wife, uh, Fifion, and replays the times that she's been unfaithful. So basically calls her out on um, her infidelity and her lying. Um, and Well, he starts by being suspicious that she is, right. and she denies it. And, <laughs> and then, then he's like, let's pull up the grain. <laughs> right, and then they go through replays, and it comes out that first she was lying about a, a, past, a relationship with somebody who they met, and then it turns out that there's much more going on, and 
it sort of slowly unfolds. It's not just it's not just that he replays these. It's that that it is a a kind of slow, almost detective like revelation. Although he's uh, a drunk jerk as he is uh, as as he is pressing her on this. So it's also interesting too because if you think about if you think about like a paper virtual paper trail that our phones leave, this whole idea of our memories can now be replayed and there's no more he said, she said in in a relationship aspect because you can be like, oh, well, did you actually say it? Let's go back and look. Um, so that's essentially what ends up happening in the episode and they end up parting ways for infidelity. And um, so what are our thoughts on this? Would we want to live in a world like this? What are some upsides to being able to replay your memories, which the episode didn't touch on at all? Yes, I want to live in that world. And here's why. Because, again, this is the most pessimistic possible scenario involving someone who's essentially peak-level obsessive-compulsive. He's he's not a nice person, right? He's not the person you want to be married to, let's be frank. Because he – and those people exist in this world, and they still are constantly interrogating their partners. Have you been faithful? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's – I do want to live in this world because there is an optimistic version of this story. I don't want to live in his house with him. Right. I want to live in another house with my... His house was pretty nice, though. It was I, nice. I would not mind okay. living in that house, maybe without him. In his house without him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, if I could live nice in the house. world of the Black Mirror architecture, that would be great. <laughs> that would be ideal. Yeah, it's very minimalist. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty very nice. Very modern. Um, but there's an optimistic alternate version of this story. Imagine a world of perfect recall where he has a car accident, which he does in this. But in this car accident, it's the inciting incident. His own recent memories of his family are wiped because his grain is destroyed. But he's able to kind of reconstruct what he, his past, reconstruct past memories of his wife and kid because of their grains. And so rather than losing through amnesia his entire past, who he is, he can recapture part of that Right. Like that's the optimistic scenario. This allows you to reforge to protect connections that you have with your loved ones. So there's this the heightened scary version. But, hey, think about the optimistic scenarios. I want to live in that world where where people have that kind of recall. Do you think people would be more honest in this world or more upfront knowing that they could someone could pull the card on them like, oh, let's take it to the grain? (laughs) Well, I mean, we can ask that right now. Are people more honest in Britain because there's CCTVs everywhere? versus the U.S. I mean, in a sense, there's a social recall uh, because of the prevalence of surveillance in the U.K. that we don't have in other countries. It's an interesting question. I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, As a journalist, I definitely want to live in this world because I'm (laughs) constantly trying to record things, and it's a a pain. And also, if you could, say, go go confront politicians by just saying, here's what you said. No, no, this is is what you said to me. We've got it on the grain. It's all recorded right there. I mean, I think it would really – it would change – uh, a lot of my job, a lot of the the world of journalism, uh, very specifically, um, but also just generally, it would change uh, how businesses operate. If you had, if, if there was never any, uh, if it, I should say, never, not never any, but if it dramatically reduced the potential for uh, lack of clarity about instructions, you wouldn't have all of these, you know, meeting notes that are like, wait, what did we actually decide there? Who said that? Did we really mean that? Was that? Is this just a mistake on in the in the notes? Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways that sort of recall would actually be pretty valuable. And the other thing that this episode doesn't get into is 
is that social conventions develop around technologies to mitigate the likely problems. And now they have, to some extent, suggested that there is a social convention of when people get together, almost like when people get together now and they end up playing YouTube clips for each other, they just end up kind of going over stuff that's locked away in their grains, in their in their heads. But they don't... It's The argument that develops between Liam and his, uh, and his wife is uh, is presented like the kind of argument that no one has ever heard of before that that this has never <laughs> happened in the history of the world in which in a world where everyone nearly everyone has a grain in which all memories are recorded perfectly uh, it's as if no one has ever dealt with this problem before and that's just a weird thing even i mean we have this now with uh with all with social media which is that there's there's a lot of interactions that people don't like and we haven't solved all of them on the other hand we do have a lot of conventions and a lot of people have ways of dealing with with them, they're expected. People aren't like, oh, this guy was a jerk to me on Twitter, or I got piled on today. I've never heard of that happening before. What do I do? This is a hellscape. <laughs> Instead, people are like, yeah, I had to block a lot of people. It was pretty annoying. I'm thinking about maybe I will switch account, switch my account to private, something like that. There's just, there are responses that, that develop. And one of the things that Black Mirror does is it always presents these technological problems as kind of essentially novel, um, even in worlds where they kind of shouldn't be. You think of the evolution process that you're describing on social media. First, think about uh, I joined Facebook in 2007. The first generation of Facebook users were – they didn't guard what they put on at all. And I count myself in this. Like pictures of yourself drinking or goofing around or – well – society, people developed defense mechanisms, responses, social norms in response to this technology. People are a lot more guarded than they used to be. We, we'd expect this to be the same in this world, but it's like it, it's it's imagining this technology dropping like Facebook did in 2007 with no evolutionary process towards Right, it's the first time anyone's encountered the grain. The first one time anyone's encountered social media, so it's not a very realistic world in that regard. Or perhaps they're still pretty early on in the adoption, so they're just learning everything that comes from it. Yeah, but you'd expect grain. I mean, these grains are pretty advanced. I mean, we're not like prototype first time. Everyone has this, so this is a product that is cheap and ubiquitous. This is multi generations of grains in this world. So, yeah, yeah, because yeah, you can see it at different iterations throughout in different episodes of Black Mirror as well. There's similar technology that is sort of consistent throughout or at least tangentially related. There's the theories that they all exist in the same universe. So I think that's also something to consider. So for me, it's it's scary in that it could be used. It's it's emblematic of a lot of technology panic, I think. So that's why I think it's, for me, like the fifth scariest. Like, yeah, there's potential, but it's there isn't. It's not spooky for libertarians specifically because of a certain value that we hold or anything like that. Yeah, I also didn't think uh, of the ones we chose today. It was the least scary, or one I didn't really think it was scary at all in the sense because I could easily see us being able to, like what Paul just said, adopt adapt to this kind of environment where everyone has grains. But I also thought, and this was like mentioned at the very, very end when he pulled his grain out that I thought it was an interesting way to end the episode, partially just because he was basically admitting to himself he'd rather be like in our world, so to speak, rather than in, in his world where everyone could see his memory. So I thought that was the scariest, if I'm using the word scary, or the most thought provoking part of the episode in that sense. But then again, it didn't really 
didn't really have an effect on the overall trajectory of the episode. No episode where we all said like, oh, that's kind of a nice house. Yeah. Could be all that. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, think I, say that, I feel like know, I said that several times, like all of the houses, yeah. like the, the dwellings yeah. in, in that episode were really just like, oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. The next episode, a little bit scarier, moving up on, on the scare scale, is White Christmas. All right. So in this episode, um, it's kind of best explained in three parts, right? So Matt is our main character. He's in all three parts of the episode. And we are in a world where everyone has a ZI implant. So here we are with another implant that goes into our head. Um, And it allows you to see or it allows others to see what you're seeing as well as... um, it allows you to like control what you're seeing um, in certain time and in terms of time periods. So Matt, our main character, runs a seedy operation of online pervs who like to watch other people go on dates and like to um, uh, he's running a side business. <laughs> and that ends up getting him in a little bit of trouble um, because he what happens on one of the dates that everyone is watching, one of the men in their group gets um, murdered by someone who it's believed to be a schizophrenic um and then it cuts to part two of the episode where matt is uh gets a woman to copy her consciousness and downloads it into what is referred to as a cookie which looks convenient like a conveniently like a very small amazon amazon alexa (laughs) Um, and um basically this woman has effectively trapped herself inside the cookie like her consciousness exists inside the cookie and then um she can control her outer body that's outside the cookie but she she feels traps she feels trapped and matt can also control time within the cookie he um tortures her a bit and make when she doesn't want to do something specific he says all right that'll be six months solitary um and then the third part of the episode which is the the juicy stuff um is uh we get a different set of characters we have joe and beth uh they're in a bit of an abusive relationship um and beth literally blocks joe from her uh, ZI, which means like he now shows up as a gray blob and he can't talk to her. He can't see any pictures of her. All the memories of her um, are like her as a gray blob. And um, she ends up having a child, which Joe believes is his. Um, he goes on to stalk her, even though he only sees her as a gray blob and sees the child as a gray blob. Beth ends up dying tragically. Um, and Joe goes and tries to see the baby and ends up killing the guy that was taking care of the baby. Um, all this to say, Matt gets tied back in because Matt is having ongoing conversations with Joe about what is what happened, and we'll go through the whole story of you and your um, you and your love interest. I don't think they were married. Um, you and their love interest, and Joe eventually confesses um, to being killed by this guy, or to, Joe confesses to killing uh, the guy, and then we realize that we were in Joe's cookie essentially and that Matt um, manipulated Joe into eliciting a confession. So then we get zoomed back out into the real world where um, Joe's Joe is effectively punished for his confession to murdering someone. So it wasn't even his confession, right? It was his Sims, his copies. His confession. cookie. His and cookie. so what they did was they convicted somebody based on pressure tactics in a simulated world against a simulated copy of that person. So, so the original human being never admitted to doing the crime that the original human being did. Uh, and it's, it's a somewhat scary uh, vision of a criminal justice system in which your self can be turned against you without your, uh, your knowledge or your uh, acceptance. Absolutely. And I think it's also from an interesting standpoint too. the idea that this was subtle, but the idea of like 
manipulating time with your with your consciousness or your your not self inside the cookie because the what we saw is like a few minutes was what he, I think Matt said five years to Joe. So it took five years to get that confession um, out of Joe's cookie self. Um, but it literally, he just manipulated time. Whereas like we're thinking, if we think about how we interrogate people now, we're in for 17 hours or so to Joe, that felt like five years. Um, so I think that was also a very, very interesting case. There's a critique there. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a little more subtle, but there's a critique of, um, isolation of criminal justice of, you know, we put people in uh, solitary confinement and there's all, all kinds of research which suggests, you know, our perception of time is relative and you put someone in solitary confinement, it itself can be a form of torture if you leave someone in there long enough. Um, this just amps that up. Like, so that's a real issue. You can drive someone crazy to confess, to do, th- you know, you, to manipulate them. It's a power play using, you know, solitary confinement for a few days or, or weeks or even hours. Well, here, what happens if you could ramp that up to, you know, e- eons? for these cookies in this space. So there's a kind of a critique there of our criminal justice system as well. It also points to, again, we have a kind of societal evolution or lack thereof problem here, which is, so imagine in this world, people are creating digital slave clones of themselves to run, to, to be their personal Alexa, which is what happens to the one the one lady, or they're, you know, to extract confessions. Don't you think people would have noticed? Again, it's a world in which it's like novel to these people that this is a an, an ethics issue of some kind. Like she seems unaware of what she's just done. Uh, the 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 lady who's oh, you she, know the one personal. who was originally in the cookie was completely unaware completely when she unaware. like woke up in the cookie she was like what's going on and one of the reasons she was tortured for six months in confinement was because she didn't necessarily didn't understand why she was there. Right, which if she had, I mean, you would expect the clone would know everything she knows. So we know she's completely unaware that this is a thing that even exists. The criminal, like, he's like, what? You mean you cloned me and got a confession? Like, I've never heard of that before. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting because at one point they do show the woman after she has installed her cookie and she seems to have no reference that what is going on inside the cookie is actually personified as her personality. So it's almost as if perhaps the way that we're viewing the technology is from a sort of – magical realism is, the I think, the wrong term. But it's, it's the fact that that's not maybe what the technology was created as, was to create a personification of this person that will function and do these tasks. But that if we take this part of your brain out and it – you know, we put it in there that it can do all of these things, but there is some like plane and a, a way that we don't realize that that's actually creating another almost sentient like being inside the cookie. Yeah. yeah, the implication I got from it was just that the the companies know and are hiding it from the consumers, as if Apple's Siri was actually a real, yeah, yeah. <laughs> effectively a real life person, a, you know, an, an intelligence on the on, on par with human beings. But Apple, of course, has presented Siri just as a, as a kind of robotic assistant uh, who we don't have to worry about. Like, uh, you don't have to worry about insulting your Siri. You don't Siri have to doesn't worry. have like, rights. It doesn't, it doesn't have rights. doesn't have feelings. It's not a, not a thing that you have to worry about. And the suggestion here is, actually, what if she did? It asks us to suspend belief. And I suppose in this case, I just, I have a, I'm struggling to suspend belief that you could have a role in which these detectives are like, yeah, yeah, crank it up and 
this wouldn't get out that that's what's going on here. There's a lot of people involved in these companies and these, you know, these these processes. Word would have gotten out, and you would expect in this world there would be you know an AI rights movement. There would be you know people recognize it. There would be a push for laws limiting their use and when you can use it, when you can't use it. Whether these simulacrum simulacra are allowed to be used for what they can't like. This is a world which none of that's happened. No societal evolution at all. It just got hit up, you know, covered up. I find I, I, it, it requires me to suspend too much of my own belief. I also think it brings up the the topic of isolation as punishment that you brought up, Paul. It it raises that a little bit more towards the end when we see that you can block people, not just as individuals, that but that perhaps some people can commit crimes so egregious that they'll receive an almost like almost a literal scarlet letter on themselves that isolates them and allows everyone to see them as a a, a blocked out blob and that sort of isolation even though they can somewhat interact and that that is another extreme that can be used as punishment it's it's isolation essentially that you you know what you're missing like it's isolation that like you're walking around you see everyone else interacting there you're a blob to them no one respects you no one says hi to you none of that interaction but you see it all happening almost like like you're watching it on TV and no and people are just walking on by, um, which happens to Matt at the end because he gets even though he helped w- what we're assuming our detectives elicit this confession, he's still being punished for his earlier um, earlier involvement, um, and he thinks that he's going to get off from helping helping the detectives out, and they're like, oh nope, sorry, everyone's blocking you. Like this is your new normal. Um, so we, what we didn't touch on is. Would we live in this world? What What are good things that could come out of any of these? I mean, slavery is great for people who aren't slaves. <laughs> but I was going to say, if I, if, I, if I no, existed I, I, in this world. I feel like world, it's bad for, you know, whatever uh, we think a, a soul is or, you know, like, yes. whatever, yeah. even if you're not like a, a believer in souls, like it's bad for, for you. If yeah. You're, yeah. Like, it's but not great. I wonder if I was a normal person with no knowledge of Black Mirror and this sort of like viewpoint into what happens in the cookies would i have someone take out a part of my brain that can do all of this assistant stuff for me maybe but knowing what i know i'm like oh of course not but hindsight's 2020 there's two different i mean like you have two scenarios one the the confession like torture you're if and if that's truly intelligent you are torturing a human being just a digital human being that's horrific the other like you can imagine if you tweak that scenario like it's assumed that AIs have to be like people. In theory, in some future society, you could create something that's intelligent. I mean, and again, this is a permeable line. Like what counts as full artificial intelligence? What passes a Turing test? But we assume that intelligence must look human and must be driven by the same desires as human beings. And we know that's the assumption because that's how they get AI in this world. It's extracted from human beings. I'm not. There's a possibility for AIs that enjoy doing what the one does, controlling the house. I mean, maybe not extracted from a person, but is a super intelligent Siri inherently necessarily unethical? I don't know about that. I I also think that they kind of overlooked opportunities that are suggested within the world to create a nicer and better life for these AIs. And like, on the one hand, I certainly would not 
uh, subject a copy of myself to uh, to a, uh, a kind of unlimited slavery, right? Where the, where the only thing that they can do all day long with no rest and no break is just manage my life and be my kind of person. That seems awful. I wouldn't do that to me. On the other hand, we know that you can create virtual environments. We know that you can uh, have people give them something to do that isn't just managing a, a person's house or their life. And why couldn't you have six or 10, a team of yourselves all all of which live in a beautiful Black Mirror style uh, yeah. mansion <laughs> yeah. and yeah. have and and have access to whatever they want. The rest of them work an hour a day, and then the rest of the time they can write novels or they can you know like do the or play video games or do whatever it is you would be doing during your leisure time, and actually perhaps even have uh, have more enjoyable uh, more enjoyable life than you might. Yeah. I think I might subject <laughs> myself to that. I'd be down. <laughs> yeah. Because like, and, I'm signing like, myself knowing up. that they would knowing that they would be perhaps even happier than I am. It's again, it's like anything's possible in this space, but because we're Black Mirror, we're just going to imagine the most horrific possible possibilities, not not the good potential. Right. Well, because uh, the beings that are in the cookies are well, one's like she's in a just basically a control room that's all white and there's nothing there but like a white bed, and and then the other the other scenario with Matt and Joe is they're in like an old rundown cabin. And it doesn't seem to have like much electricity. They're in. They're like it's just not an ideal. Well, a Black Mirror architectural beauty. <laughs> um, it's they're in. Ve- they're in very bleak scenarios. But why not create that idealized world? And you know, one problem you would have with it would be that you that you might get lonely. Now you would have perhaps many of yourselves to talk to. But also, there's no. There appears to be kind of no internet in the traditional sense, no kind of connection between all of these uh, simulated beings. And so why can't they talk to each other and be friends with each other? And uh, again, to bring up um, uh, a different uh, science fiction uh, work, uh, Neil Stevenson's new book, Fall, imagines the development from being one, actually kind of from proto being one of a whole world of virtual people who build a society uh, essentially inside a bunch of servers as humanity migrates into into the server afterlife. And it's a fascinating and much more, uh, it's also a thousand page novel, but it's a fascinating, <laughs> much more detailed look at how that might work. And he doesn't suggest that there would be no problems or that everybody would be perfectly happy all the time. What he does suggest is that people would, is that society would develop, people would have uh, friends and family and sort of normal lives and expectations, and that there would be, that there would be ways that it would resemble, not perfectly, the, the world that we live in now. Can I offer a non-tech-related reason why this is a world I want to live in? Absolutely. It's a world that has John Hamm in it. And I'm a John Hamm stan. <laughs> call me, call me a, uh, Our a hamster. Our world has John Hamm. Hamster. That's true, a hamster. <laughs> but in this one, John Hamm will you know whisper into my ear if I'm a cookie, you know, and, and can break, I get break John me. Hamm in my cookie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's what it, right. Can't you, can't you get John Hamm to like isn't this a market opportunity? You, maybe you want yourself to be your digital your digital assistant. Yeah. But what if you want John Hamm to be your digital assistant? <laughs> Couldn't you get rich being John Hamm and being like, mm-hmm. take my copies? I will try. Right? You, there's a this is a premium digital assistant. Yeah. It's John Hamm, and he's going to be John Hamm yeah. in your ear all the time. Except John Hamm, the real one, just gets to live in his Black Mirror. Mansion. I mean, if you think about it, like all the people that want the the special voices for their GPS now, like you can get Morgan Freeman to voice your GPS. Yes, it's, it's only it's only a few steps until we everyone gets a little John Ham cookie. So, <laughs> mm, ham cookies. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So we're, let's move on to the next episode. Uh, so our next on the list uh, is going to be 15 Million Merits. And this is from the first season. Correct. This is only the second episode uh, that, that came out, originally released uh, in, in the UK. So in a world where most of society as we can see it at least, must cycle on exercise bikes in order to earn currency called merits and perhaps power their world. We see Bing, who meets Abby, and uh, he actually convinces her to take part in a American Idol X-Factor-like talent show in order to escape this world around them. However, after doing so, uh, and after essentially being drugged, um, The only offer of escape that she's given is to appear in an adult entertainment show by one of the producers. So in order to seek revenge or something like that, Bing then devotes all of his time to earning more merits so that he can appear on the show again. And he performs a dance, but in the middle of doing so, stops and has a shard of glass that he's hidden up his sleeve and threatens to hurt himself on air unless they listen to his demands. And he goes on this rant about the, the, the you know, the phoniness of it all and, and how fake everything seems and disingenuous it all is. Um, But rather than actually seeming to accomplish much, it then flashes forward to seeing him ranting again only to end with an advertisement and pan out and showing him in much more lavish living quarters with a view of what looks to be uh, the outdoors and greenery. Um, And seemingly very little has changed for the masses. So So he's a sellout. Yes, essentially. So what is particularly spooky or not spooky about this episode? It's, I mean, we just described the life of Logan Paul. It's it's every day, bro. (laughs) The grind, you're on the treadmill, the life of an Instagram influencer. It's all fake. It's phony. It's performative outrage, performative anger. It trains you to be a a fake and the phony. It's just, it's a heightening of, of that. This was kind of the first, this was the first episode of Black Mirror I watched because I was told by lots of friends not to watch the first episode of the first season just because it would turn you off for the rest of the show um so i watched this one first and honestly the first thing i thought of was do these people who are feeding into this machine as we're calling it did are do they have any experience with any other type of life so like because you could kind of get a scenario where bing you would think like knows what other life is like or like that he was I don't know if he had other experiences or this was like a new change or what have you, but it didn't seem like any of the other characters were really questioning why they were doing what they were doing. And I was like, do they not have like, you know, 2019 experience of real life? Like what kind of quality of life is going on here? Um, So that's kind of what struck me as like the most odd. And I guess kind of going back to suspending disbelief, I was like, well, like I kind of would have liked to see more of it being them using experiences from like a previous life or kind of understanding how how they got to this point. So there's another um, Funhouse Mirror, still dystopian, but Funhouse Mirror version of this story, which is Wally. Think of the people in Wally. But in this world, in the imagined world of Wally, it's the flip that people use entertainment and comfort to keep people literally fat and happy and floating. Um, to th- their mindless consumers. So what's uh, what's funny to me is that you have both of these are heightened versions of current concerns that are actually are very similar but end up in very different places. One in which people are constantly on the treadmill to produce entertainment for some other 
group and others where that we're in a post-scarcity world where you can have all the big gulpies you want and everyone's literally fat and happy. Um, I mean, both, though, are, for all you fans of Italian continental philosophy, Antonio Gramsci, it's Gramscian hegemony. You can't escape it even if you want. You're, you're kept, uh, the, even the attempts at resistance ultimately buttress um, the strength of the machine holding you in check um, until a plucky little robot comes along and, you know, finds defies the system, finds a plant. But, but Natalie, to your point, I think part of what makes the sh- that epi- this episode kind of interesting and sort of makes the metaphor... Uh, work in certain ways, um, and I agree. Like it's weird how how contained their lives are, and how little they question what else is going on. On the other hand, I think kind of the argument is that's all of us going to work every day, and not really like w- that. You know, just sort of to build up credits in this system so that we can have mindless entertainment in the evening, so that we can go back and do more of it. Uh, so that there's and there's never anything real, and there's no purpose to any of it. We're just riding the bike or running the treadmill for all of our lives. Um, I don't think that's what you're doing. It- Cato, and I don't think that's what I'm doing at reason. But then I would think that if you I were part it. of the system, right? Yeah. Um, but that's, I think, the argument of the, of the of that episode is, and part of what makes that that part of the metaphor works is that it 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 is trying to say that people don't question and don't know what else there is, and 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 maybe there even isn't anything else because what what does he have at the end? Is he still participating in the system? He just has a nicer apartment and a view of uh, some greenery. Yeah, and you see, once again, going back to the theory, or it, it's almost confirmed now that they all exist in the same universe. There's another episode where you see the sh- the talent show that they are on uh, actually playing in the background of someone who seemingly lives a very a life very much like we would live in 2019. So there is the element of okay, maybe the entire world isn't like this scenario that Bing lives in. So how did they end up there? It, there Did they opt in somehow and that, you know, by doing so, they're provided at least a steady stream of, of like a trickle of, of consistent living quarters and or something like that. So it, it once again, it makes me wish that we got a little bit more of a pan out to see how these technologies are interacting with one another. But it obviously is way too much to tackle. And that's part of the part of the uh, the appeal of the Black Mirror is that you get these self-contained, mysterious worlds that that uh, you know that we don't necessarily get fully explained to the us. The other connection I think that we should probably just bring up since we're talking about both episodes is uh, that um, the song that the woman sings in uh, 15 Million Merits in this American Idol-like show uh, is anyone who anyone who knows what love is will understand, which is an Irma Thomas song that also is the karaoke song that is sung uh, in White Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think also appears uh, is a plays in the background on the radio in a, in another episode. I believe it's in uh, Be Right Back, the one with the the doll. They they listen to it in the car and it like they have romantic memories and it's something where they hope like it's it's integral to their like relationship. So it's something that obviously carries a lot of weight. Uh, in the series of the show. But they do like a lot of small things like that that hint at where people start creating all these elaborate theories of how characters might be related or how text might be related. Just like small hints like that where producers probably on the other side are like, oh no, we just, these worlds just... They're just here. They're just little pockets. It's a fun little thing <laughs> right. for the for the viewers to enjoy and yeah. point out, even if they didn't intend for them to all exist yeah. in the same timeline or something like that. So, what do we think about this this little pocket of the world? Are we are we gonna go on a bike 
for hours to get our merits. Are we already in this world? <laughs> yeah. On the treadmill of productivity. So I, I will say that as somebody, maybe I don't, do, do any of you here play um, online video games at all where you like have to spend a lot of time doing what's called grinding, oh. where you World have to level up your right, World of Warcraft, uh, even stuff um, like Anthem, like uh, you know, a bunch of these games. That's exactly this. You just you go and you log in and you do the same thing. There's a Destiny is a very popular version of this. You log in and you you do the exact same thing basically every day. And sometimes there are some new levels that come out uh, and your character kind of virtually levels up. And the point of leveling up is so that you can get new weapons and new stuff for your avatar that will then allow you to Grind take more. on more powerful enemies <laughs> that are yeah. basically exactly as difficult as the previous enemies now that you they're a little more powerful, you're a little more powerful, and the kind of cycle just continues and continues. And the end point of this is... You, is that you start another game or you, you, you restart this. And there's something, I mean, I, there's times when I do it and I'm like, oh man, I really, that was eight hours. I will not get back. And there's <laughs> other times when I'm like, actually, this is kind of fun and fascinating. And these games are really smart and, and complex and interesting. Um, and also surprisingly social. And that's one of the things that these, uh, that this episode overlooks or sort of uh, it decides to, to, uh, to eliminate is that these people don't have any relationships to speak of. And, and human connection is just totally absent. And if you look at Fortnite and how, uh, how a lot of the most hardcore fans play Fortnite, sure, it's a game that they want to do well at. And sure, it's a game they log in and spend a lot of time playing just so that their avatar can have a new hat or a new weapon. Um, on the other hand, they also spend a lot of time talking to their friends there. And it is, it is for a certain subset of players, it's basically a social network uh, and perhaps an even better social network than Facebook or Twitter in terms of how uh, it encourages users to interact together, to achieve goals, uh, to be to, to actually talk to each other rather than just post uh, sort of nonsense about politics. There is politics that sometimes comes up. But um, yeah, so I mean, there's, there's parts of our lives that are already like this. And what's weird is, or maybe not weird, we're choosing to do that. Right. If you're, if you're playing, no one is forcing anyone to play Fortnite as far as I can tell. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there is. There's, all right. It, it seems, I, right. It's probably that mom and dad. That's an episode you. of Black Mirror. Is someone being forced to play Fortnite? Yeah. Um, no, but it, but for the most part, when when we engage in those experiences, they're they're ones that we actually seek out and choose as forms of relaxation. Yeah. Or even even the the, the treadmill of work. Most of us could actually work less. You could survive on a part-time job. You would come with consequences. You have fewer stuff. But there are people who opt out of working. They're, they're beach bums. They go, they're climbing bums, like the dude who climbed Yosemite, right? Like, there are people who opt out of work, and they're fine with that. But most of us choose to work. We choose to work as much as we work. Why do we climb on the treadmill? Well, because of the relationships, relationships, relationships that work with coworkers, uh, relationships with family. We're able to support a family using the uh, uh, the things that we do it because we choose to do it, and because we enjoy it. We find meaning at work. Actually, when people stop working, it, it the the rate of uh, mental illness, depression, um, the elderly who work live longer. I mean, so. They're framing it as like, here's this meaningless, empty treadmill. Well, that we're all on. And yes, we all are. But they take out all the good stuff <laughs> about the treadmill. That's what makes it so spooky. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's move on to our next episode. So we're going to hit on White Bear. Um, we have two two episodes left. So White Bear will be the next. This one for me is 
I think there's something about it. It's one of my favorite episodes because I I just didn't anticipate the the sort of twist that came along. I don't know if that was just me. But in White Bear, our main character Victoria wakes with no memory but sees a photo of her and a young girl, which we can assume is most likely her daughter. And then that's what she assumes. Exactly. Right. So it's 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 uh, it's meant for us to kind of empathize with her and follow her in that. Exactly. Assumption. We go along with her on this journey where she's wandering through an, an almost abandoned cityscape where she begins to be hunted by these sadistic and violent hunters and no one will assist her except for a, a, a very select few of people. Most people just stand far away and seemingly view her through their f- cell phone cameras and eventually after a long, long scenario where she's almost able to uh, defend herself, we learn that Victoria is actually a convicted criminal who has pled guilty to aiding her fiancé in the abduction, torture, and murder of a young girl. And as her punishment, she is she is basically sentenced to have her memory wiped every night and relive this hunting scenario that people can then come visit and take part in as part of the White Bear Justice Park. What did you think? Uh, I mean, it, I, I would say just in terms of sheer um, sheer intensity, this is the the most intense and most viscerally frightening of the episodes, even of the one, even including the one that we're going to talk about next. Uh, it's it's a fascinating uh, kind of uh, thought experiment. Um, at first, you think it's a it's a fairly straightforward critique of social media because people are following her with their phones, and they're and this is her. She walks outside and she sees all these people in the in the windows, and they they've all got their phones and they're they're taping her, but they won't talk. And then there's of course the hunters that are coming after her as well, and so the hunters are just uh, uh, the people are taping. Are taping awful acts are tape are are there and they seem to be excited when the violence get wor- gets worse and at one point she's told by somebody else that you know there was this uh, this signal that went across the television and after it most people snapped and people realized that they could just do anything they wanted because there were no rules anymore I mean kind of a the, the a, a it is a very similar to a description we've heard a lot of help people act online, which is, oh, wait, you're online, you're anonymous, uh, people, there's no rules anymore. Um, Now people are just going to be horrible to each other, not just jerks, they're going to commit a kind of verbal violence. And then, of course, what we learned is that she is someone who has done this herself, but forgotten it. And so after the whole, after the episode establishes her as a sympathetic character, as somebody who you relate to, it spends the first, what, three quarters of the episode doing that uh, in the third act, what you find out is that the person who you're supposed to feel like, oh, this is me and I can relate to just being horrified by all these things people are doing to me online. No, actually, you did it first and you've just forgotten. And you are as you are part of the problem. And in, in, in uh, this system has been set up to punish you for being just as bad, arguably much worse as all of them. And it's it's uh, there's a kind of circularity to it. Um, and the twist. Uh, that is really fascinating and the twist implicates the viewer it is like no wait you think you think social media is horrible it's horrible because you're horrible on social media (laughs) well and you also have a a certain having an amusement park as a you know we bay for blood you know the rise of online outrage culture 
it, it, we get a visceral thrill off of hunting down people who sometimes, I mean, sometimes, you know, people do outrageous things worthy of outrage, but sometimes someone makes a mistake and we define that person by the mistake and then we go after them for digital blood. And so it's critiquing that, that people would turn that into an amusement park. You buy a ticket to go to Disney World, like you'd buy a ticket to go to the White Bear uh, Corrections Amusement Park, whatever they call it. Um so there's a critique there as well of internet outrage culture. But then there is too, I think, um, they are criticizing – not criticizing. They're depicting a kind of perfect tech. So they're able to race her mind, stage this whole process. Perfect tech, perfect process, helping courts administer the perfect punishment. Um uh, that you can calibrate this for individual – I don't know. There's something there that is off-putting to me that's assumed that you can individualize punishment in this way um, and then invite the public to come in and, and participate in this kind of mob – Perfect mob justice, technologically enabled perfect mob justice. I think what was most, I guess, terrifying to me was more so what they were saying about group think. So, like, this is essentially an entire episode on group think in the in the sense that they're these people are videoing and they're enjoying it, right? They're not they're not there just because their neighbor there are because like that's how you fit in. Like, they're really like buying into this type of system, which is which is scary in the sense that. I would have loved to see after we got that twist, someone standing up and being like, oh, like this, maybe this is bad or like maybe this is like off putting, like uh, Paul just said. But I think uh, the entire episode is more of like a larger conversation about groupthink and like how it ties to like we were saying, like uh, ostracizing so- someone on social media for something they tweeted or um, and then the, mo- the mob comes after them. Right. Just because, you know, someone famous or with a blue check, whatever. Did, did any, either of you guys. um as I was watching it, I felt a little uncomfortable in like a post Me Too moment because I kept wondering if she had been gaslit or controlled by her fiance. Um, I don't know if they meant those to, to hint in that direction, but that's what it felt like to me. And that might be because of I'm looking through. I, I don't remember picking up on that when I watched it years ago when it first came out. But now it almost feels like I felt bad for her, not just because she was supposed to be the point of view character, because I kept wondering, is he like she's complicit? Sure. But was she being controlled into participating into this crime? I think that's really interesting, and I think that's what makes it a little bit scarier, perhaps, is you know that hindsight that we have. I know that her case is very much based on a real case that happened in the UK of a couple that did this to a child. Um, so I can't say that that – I mean, I, I don't think that that was the scenario. I can't speak to it perfectly, but I think that's really interesting and, and – brings up some of the issues that if this is something that can be used and tailored to specific people, what's the prevalence of it? Is it only saved for these very, very violent and and who gets – is it really just this one judge that they identify that gets to determine this punishment and who gets it? Um, And and it – I was thinking about it, not necessarily a libertarian thinker, but something that libertarians bar- borrow a lot from is you know, Foucault calls it the spectacle of the scaffold and, and how that the, this, the mob and, and the, the execution and public display is a way that they shore up power uh, as a way of providing that to the mass. But usually there was also some resistance to that and people would try and set prisoners free and, and would sort of retaliate against it because they saw it as this – 
hegemonic power and, and, and unjust. But in this world, it's very, very much accepted, uh, at least from what we can see, which to me is what makes it a little bit scarier. Um, and the fact that, as Peter pointed out, that it, it flips it and implicates the viewer and makes you realize that uh, you're as much a part of it, basically in, in both sides, that really there is no one that becomes a, a, a just character that you can follow and empathize with. It, it's very pessimistic in that way, which is, of course, that's Black Mirror. <laughs> so I, I can't think of a scenario that I would, why I would want to live in this world, but is there any positive aspects that could come out of this world that maybe Black Mirror missed? I'm struggling. So am I. <laughs> I thought uh, the one thing is when the they fire the gun and then she like is in the chair and it spins around and the auditorium like swoops in. I was like the stage manager. That's an amazing <laughs> like what th- they need that for Broadway because I would be like this is amazingly well done. The production value. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, there's there's times when I would like to have somebody wipe my memory at the end of the day and just start over. Yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't. I don't know if I would. Uh, necessarily want to live in a world. I certainly wouldn't want to live in a world where that was the criminal justice system or part of it at all. It does seem really hard to scale. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah, what, right. Like, yeah. literally, you need How many of these parks exist? Miles, right? Is there just the one? Is it a monument? <laughs> yeah. Is it a... It's very odd, sort of, right? So it kind of doesn't think through the the implications of, like, what if this is the... If for a show that is all about systemic effects, it just doesn't seem to consider that this is a system that doesn't that doesn't scale and doesn't replicate easily. I went to the world in which they do this for all the crimes. So like you were like, you got pulled over for a speeding ticket. So you get, you get your memory wiped <laughs> and you have to go five miles over the speed limit permanently. <laughs> and then <laughs> I have all people you're, you're, you're driving behind a slow, like, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, like a, slow. A, a horse driven, you know, horse pulled tra- uh, trailer for yeah. the rest of your life. And it's just like, uh, it's sort of Harrison Bergeron, but yeah. there was a, I did, I did sort of find it fascinating the way that, this episode inverted the Truman Show, um, which, uh, if you know anything about that movie, um, is a uh, it's a a reality show about uh, a, a, there's a single re- real person in the show, and that everybody around him in his life is an actor, and they follow him from birth to death. But the original script for that movie was a dy- was dystopian, and the the movie itself is very sunny and beautiful. It was shot just a few miles from where I grew up uh, in Florida, in this kind of weirdly super planned town. But the original script took place in a city, and it was very dark and. Dreary and the whole thing was just that it would be miserable all the time and then um and then the the director Peter Weir uh, switched that around but it like it really seems to channel the Truman Show in, in the sense that there is one person who doesn't know what's going on is being filmed by everyone uh, for the entertainment of the masses and uh, and is is kept in the dark until the very end I didn't even think about that comparison until now but that that Definitely. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. All right. Moving on to our scariest men against fire. This episode follows Stripe, who is a soldier whose job is to hunt mutant human creatures that they call roaches with the aid of a a neural implant called a mass implant. Uh, After a a series of encounters, it begins to malfunction and he discovers that these roaches are actually just – other humans, perhaps of a of a differing ethnic group than uh, than uh, he is a part of, and the implant actually alters his vision to see them as dehumanized, and also that he had previously agreed to have his memory wiped, just like in White Bear, in order to kill them without remorse. 
So for me, this is particularly scary. And they mentioned this before, not just because you have this very, very powerful, seemingly uh, government-sponsored, unless it's some sort of private security force, which I don't see as being the case, sponsoring essentially a, a one of the steps in genocide and dehumanizing and killing a specific ethnic group. But that's not the scariest part for me. The scariest part is that we can assume that there has been so much propaganda or or, or some way that they have convinced people without this mass implant that the roaches are dehumanized because – they, there are people without these implants that still consider this ethnic group to be essentially something that needs to be eliminated. So what I found profoundly scary about this episode is that it is incorrect. So the, the episode is Men Against Fire, which is a reference to a book written by a World War One veteran general military historian named Samuel Marshall, who wrote a book by the same name during the Vietnam War. And basically all the ideas from his book um, – the actor who plays Douglas Stamper in House of Cards, I forget his name. Michael Kelly. Michael Kelly. He he sits him down and says, uh, here's why we, we had to do this. We had to put this implant in because we found that only a very small percentage of soldiers are willing to shoot the enemy. And so we had to put this in to make the enemy look horrifying. We had to dehumanize the enemy so he'd be willing to kill. This was Marshall, the real world Marshall's argument in his book, Men Against Fire, uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, later on, researchers, his military historians and others went – in fact, he made all that up. All those numbers, all those statistics were fabricated. Um, it turns out soldiers are perfectly willing to kill other people. And that's why I wasn't surprised that he opted in to not feeling remorse because I was like thinking while I was watching it, I was like, well, our tech, uh, in theory, many of our soldiers opt into that all the time. Like, Or maybe they don't intentionally opt in but know that's going to be a consequence or what have you. But I w- it didn't surprise me that he opted in, although it's sad and like that wouldn't be something I would opt into. But um, I think it was striking in the sense too that I, I don't think – I think they're just hyper – are they're hyper elevating some of the tendencies that are so why I'm saying our soldiers soldiers in this world may have already they're just hyper and that well we also forgot too that they can see through drones and they can see like they they use all the different technology um so that's a, another added aspect um in order to stalk these roaches um but i think part of it is like i didn't see it all that different from how we currently act and in, in in a ravaging wartime that is yeah, I mean, I, I found this episode uh, fairly frightening. Um, I did not realize uh, that all of the stats were wrong. I meant to look them up and, and had not <laughs> had not gotten to that. But that's fascinating uh, because it obviously came from uh, came from somewhere, uh, you know, from a source that now I guess is uh, is inaccurate. Um, I guess uh, what struck me about this episode was um, was just sort of how how kind of uh malevolent um in a way that seemed over that seemed just to be way too sort of exaggerated uh to the to a point where it didn't need to be Arquette the Michael Kelly character was right he is like on the one hand he sort of thinks okay we're protecting the bloodline but he's given all of these lines that are that are just such like mustache twirling villain lines that are that are like not like and there's there is i think 
a better episode in which so you actually have a Michael Kelly character who is vaguely sympathetic, who is making an argument that is not one that is designed to repulse you, but is one that is like, look, we, we have to protect our home. We have to protect our people. These, you know, what we could call them invaders, for example. Um, we could, you know, like in which, you know, it's still right, kind of uh, loaded language that has uh, obvious political. Um, but if you had done that uh, a few years ago, it would have been different. Uh, the. The, but the idea that um, I, I mean, he's sort of we're, we're we're meant to think that he's serious about this and thinks it's a real problem. On the other hand, we're also just meant to find him utterly horrific. And the thing is, you talk to people in the military, you talk to people who think that it's their job to to kill for the state. Um, many of them are are sincere, earnest, and even in many ways, uh, in many all virtually always quite decent people who we all get along with. Um, and they have real they have reasons that are not just sort of like oh I'm a I'm a monster uh, for doing what they do. And Kelly is uh, Kelly's character is a monster um, in a way that I think in some way, like it's meant to heighten the metaphor. It's sort of the metaphorical impact of uh, of the episode. And it actually ends up weaken, weakening it in a way because he's such a cartoon character. So do we think this is, this world for Men Against Fire is somewhere we would want to live or are we already kind of living in it but don't, don't know it as much because we're not as active, uh, none of us are active military members, um, we're not active in that world or wh- what do we think? Uh, I don't live in this world at all. Nope. No, nope. I mean, no, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's a big zero. Right? It's, 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 it's terrifying for for every reason. There's not anything in this that I that I am interested in in, in like being part of. Uh, I don't want uh, the possibility of uh, the government erasing my agreement to do something. I don't want the possibility of uh, soldiers who are who are manipulated by uh, by uh, the by government authorities in a ways that um, you know, sort of change what they see in order to get them to kill people who are living uh, amongst us. I don't want I don't want ethnic cleansing <laughs> of any kind for any reason, nope. whether it is aided by technology or not. Um, I'm, I'm pretty against all of this. It all just seems sort of horrible. I think, it, I mean, it's a good episode. Um, it sort of does, it does what it needs to do. It's a little bit simplistic and on the nose yeah. in, in some ways. Uh, but uh, no, I don't want to live in Right. So anyway. so it's it's spooky for libertarians on mass like as an idea it's spooky for the philosophy or or the the sort of uh, the ideals that we have but it's not spooky to me as a person because like you said like it's so on the nose it's it is very much uh cartoony and and I could tell that there was something there was something coming, and I I almost got to it. I feel like when I watched it the first time. So I also think it was like yes, we labeled it the scariest in this sense, but it also like it wasn't my favorite episode. Like it wasn't an episode I necessarily enjoyed or thought. Like I thought White Bear was a much more engaging episode and like had me really gripped and watching the whole time. Whereas I saw myself watching Men Against Fire, and I was like, oh, like I one I could kind of predict what what we were going for and two I like didn't think it as as much engaging to an audience um, partially for its simplistic nature I guess we should ask are there any honorable mentions episodes you find particularly spooky or something like that that you want that you would have included in your top five or or a favorite one we didn't include yeah or even things that you think are are great for libertarians that you'd be like this is this is a really great world for libertarians uh, nothing. Nothing comes to mind. Um, 
though I I would almost say that I, I, I know it's not Black Mirror, but mm-hmm. the antithesis of Black Mirror is the uh, Philip K. Dick show on Amazon, which is another mm-hmm. science fiction anthology that does a that is uh, I think does more to portray the positive aspects of technology. Not always. It's not just sort of a, a relentlessly happy and positive show. Right. I don't want to portray it that way. But it's it's a little more interested in the ways that technology makes our lives better. I think, well, my one of my favorite episodes was the most recent, um, oh my gosh, the social media one. What is Nosedive? This? Nosedive. We didn't talk about it today because I was just more so on social media and I really like the actress in it. But besides the point, <laughs> um, I think they did an awesome job with the movie, which we didn't touch on, um, Bandersnatch, which was like a Black Mirror spinoff. Um, and that was all about... Um, like it was one of those you experience it and you create your own movie and you can decide what the characters do. So um, it was a, a larger discussion on like uh, self um, self-worth, self-evaluation, uh, being able to control the, the, the scenario that was going on for the characters. Um, so I thought that was interesting and I would have liked to talk about that one more too. Thanks for listening to Pop and Lock. There are a lot of great episodes of Black Mirror we didn't get to cover. Some you might even find spookier than we did. Let us know what you thought on Twitter. You can follow the show at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a production of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.